a privilege to be able to lead you now in our study of the book of Psalms, which are songs for summer. The Psalms are the hymnal of the church, and so I want to ask you to open your hymnals to Psalm 25. That'll be your Bible. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25. For millennia, the Psalms have been for the church a voice, have given the church voice to express her longing for God in the midst of persecution or stagnation or revival or difficulty. The Psalms have served as the hymnal for corporate church gatherings, a lot like this one. 3,000 years ago, the, the people of God gathered together and would sing out of the book of Psalms. John Calvin even wrote, When we have looked thoroughly everywhere and searched high and low, we shall find no better songs nor more appropriate for the purpose than the Psalms of David, which the Holy Spirit made and spoke through him. And furthermore, when we sing, we are certain that God puts the words in our mouths as if he himself were singing in us to exalt his glory. John Calvin didn't think that the Psalms were the only method for singing in the church, but he sees their value to the church as indispensable. Let's look at Psalm 25 together. Please, would you read along with me? Of David... To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The Psalms, however, are not meant to merely be read. They're meant to be sung. They're meant to be interpreted and understood musically. And so before we... Um, I, want us to, well, I want us to imagine the Psalm 
as it's being sung. And in just a moment, I want us to sing it together. You're welcome to hold your Bible in your lap and read along and meditate on the words of the psalm. I invite you to listen and imagine the psalmist singing. I, I want to invite you to sing along when you get the hang of it or to pray this psalm. But now let's sing together Psalm 25. It's a long one. I lift my soul to God, my trust is in His name. Let not my foes that seek my blood Still triumph in my shame Sin and the powers of hell Persuade me to despair Lord, make me know thy covenant well That I may escape the snare From the first dawning light Till the dark evening rise For thy salvation, Lord, I wait with ever-longing eyes, remember all thy grace and lead me in thy truth. Forgive the sins of former days and follies of my youth. The Lord is just and kind, the meek shall learn his ways. And every humble sinner find the blessings of his grace. For His own goodness sake He saves my soul from shame He pardons though my guilt be great Through my Redeemer's name Where shall the man be found that fears to offend his God? That loves the gospel's joyful sound and trembles at the rod. The Lord shall make him know the secret of his heart. The wonders of his covenant show and all his love impart. The dealings of his hand are truth and mercy still. With such as in His covenant stand And love to do His will Their souls shall dwell at ease Before their Maker's face Their seed shall taste the promises In their extensive grace Mine eyes in my desire Are ever to the Lord I love to plead His promises and rest upon His Word For His own goodness sake He saves my soul from shame He pardons though my guilt be great Through my deed. 
Redeemer's name. When shall the sovereign grace of my forgiving God restore me from those dangerous ways? My wandering feet have trod the tumult of my woes. Doth enlarge my woe. My spirit languishes, my heart is desolate and low. With every morning light, my grief anew begins. Look on my anguish and my pain, and pardon all my sins. Behold the hosts of hell, how cruel is their hate. Against my life they rise and join Their fury with deceit With humble faith I wait To see thy face again Of Israel it shall ne'er be said He sought the Lord in vain Oh keep my soul from death Nor put my hope to shame For I have placed my only trust In my Redeemer's name Oh, keep our souls from death Nor put our hope to shame For we have placed our only trust in our Redeemer's name. Amen. We, we sing our prayers. And if you, if you noticed it a moment ago, that's what we've been doing all morning. We've been singing our prayers to God. The song alludes to what I would like to identify as the telos of this psalm. The big idea throughout the complexity of life. Faith looks to God as forgiver of past, friend in present, faithful in the future. Throughout the complexity of life, the the lot of life does not make sense. Faith chooses to look at God as forgiver of the past, friend in the present, and faithful in the future. The, The circumstance undergirding the psalm is an experiential acknowledgement of the complexity of life. I shouldn't have to say it in church, but life is complex. Following God is hard. The form of this psalm, I think, alludes to that a little bit in its complexity. It's a Hebrew acrostic, so every line of the psalm begins with a a new Hebrew letter, meaning that the artist, the poet, David, is constrained to this structure. And so as we understand the meaning of each line, it looks as like he's all over the place, as though he's like, I... My heart is bursting and I have to get it on the page using the right letters. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's hard to preach from top to bottom. So we're preaching it chronologically instead this morning. 
But I think that, even that alone, helps us to identify with it as, you know what, the prayer doesn't have to have this logical flow from beginning to end for it to make sense to God. Life is complex enough that there's not a, uh, a pattern or a form of praying. It seems to me that I want to spend just a minute on this understanding of the complexity of life for just a moment because I think the church has gone foul in this. So the, the cultural Christianity, I think, quips far too easily God will not give you more than you can handle or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or if God brings you to it, he'll lead you through it. You hear that everywhere you go. Bumper stickers, websites, memes, everything. And it's usually the response to some critical suffering. Those are cultural phrases. They're not biblical phrases. The fundamental error, I think, is that they oversimplify life. And this oversimplification sounds palatable because it sounds kind of like Bible. I want you to turn back just a few pages to Psalm 1. It sounds like Bible because there's, a, there's an element of truth to it. You remember a couple years ago, maybe you don't remember a couple years ago, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. It sounds like Bible. It sounds like there's two ways. You're a righteous man. You choose righteousness, and it should go well with you. Life should be that simple. You're wicked. Life should go poorly for you. It's that simple. But it's not. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, which is illustrated by John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, makes it quite clear that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So then, why is it so easy to say, trust God and it's just going to work out? In the midst of a crisis, those quips are bad news to you. Well, that's not helpful to me. Look at what faith has done for David in Psalm 25. First, his primary concern in verse 2, the first request, let not me be put to shame. Specifically, specifically, he doesn't want his enemies dancing on his grave, gloating that his life was wasted which is not the primary concern of someone who's convinced that God will never give them something more than they can handle, but is always the concern of someone who is wrestling with the disparity between what is true about God and what is true about my experience. Let me not be put to shame. Second, later David's feet are tangled up in a net. He's utterly debilitated in an attempt to free himself. That's verse 15. And then 16 through 19 Lonely and afflicted, the troubles of my heart, distressed, afflicted and troubled. Our our proclivity, influenced by our cultural Christianity, 
is to say, well, are you even following God, David? Life looks so grim, so bleak for you. Are you even following him? David, the psalmist, the anointed king of Israel, the man after God's own heart would say, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. I forgot to mention his foes and their violent hatred of him. One of the reasons I think that this life is so complex and that we, is because the course of life is referred to throughout Scripture and in this psalm as a way. A way. I wish that life was referred to as a list. Maybe I don't wish that at all, but it would be simpler. It would be more apparent and obvious which way to go if life was a list. But throughout the Bible, to be one of God's people meant that you followed God's way. You walked in the way of Yahweh. The first time that phrase is used is in Genesis 18:19, when God speaks with Abram. And he says, I've chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice. That's what the way is, righteousness and justice. And Moses then uh, extrapolates this. We have the books of law. And what do those laws boil down to? They boil down to, this is what it looks like to keep the way of Yahweh. Specifically, here's a lot of laws about doing righteousness and here's a lot of laws about doing justice. Jesus then recapitulates the Abrahamic covenant when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're boiling down this. We like to create the lists. We're boiling them down to a way. There is a way to live. And the way is complex. And the way is difficult. In the Mosaic Covenant, the way was very clearly defined. It was easy. A strict legal code left no real room for interpretation. You were either, either your ox hurt the other man's ox or it didn't. It was pretty clear. In the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant in Jesus, though, the way is less clearly defined. The way is now, what does it look like to be like God? What does it look like to love righteousness and justice and walk in the way of God? So walking the way of Yahweh, living the life of faith, might not be as simple as we make it. We all, as followers of the way of Jesus, as the followers of the way of God, I think we must begin, as we even understand this psalm, by acknowledging that walking this way, living the life of faith, requires guidance, wisdom, boldness, faith but it does not consist of the universal lists that we like to impose on it. So now this leads us to ask big questions about life. What is the way of Yahweh? I don't have a job. I'm debating between jobs. What is the way of Yahweh? I I got three girls I like. I don't know which one to marry. Which way, which one is the way of Yahweh? When we wrestle with the way of following God like that, what does God say about my family? What is the way of Yahweh with loving my wife? 
What does God say about my work, my recreation? In some things, he's quite clear, have you know, in this new covenant writing. But in other things, we must look to God for wisdom. So instead of attempting to recreate a law for you, I trust that this psalm will lead you to pray for that direction, to pray that question, what is your way, God, as David does? In, in light of the complexity of the life of faith, in light of following the way of Yahweh, David's response is to pray. He doesn't, he doesn't philosophize about what a way is. and what a, He doesn't strategize. He doesn't make lists for himself. He goes to prayer. So in Psalm 25, instead of 26 alphabetical movements, I want simply to highlight that faith looks to God in three temporal movements in David's prayer. It looks to God in the past. It looks to God in the present. It looks to God in the future. But fundamentally, faith looks to God. Faith looks to God. I want to highlight the language that, that expresses David's faith in Psalm 25. Verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, in you I trust. And in verse 4, he requests, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. The emphatic imperative, Don't let me not know your ways. I can't go another day without knowing your ways, Lord. Many times our, our prayers go a little bit like, God, and help me to know um, your way and help me to know what's next. Instead of, God, make me know your way. Don't let me go by another day without knowing how I might follow you today. Verse 4, faith says, Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Look at the line of thought there in David's understanding of his faith. You are the God of my salvation, therefore, lead me in your truth and teach me. The life of faith, the walking, the leading, or the following the leader, walking the way of Yahweh is a response to God's character and activity in the past. You are the God of my salvation. You've done something for me. You've changed me. You've given me hope and a future. You've called me to something. You've made a covenant with me. Therefore, I've got to follow you with everything I've got. Verse 5 continues, For you I wait all the day long. In verse 15, another expression of his faith, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. I think that this, in verse 15, is an excellent description of the life of faith. It is every aspect of my life in relation to God. Every aspect of my life with reference to God. When I eat, Eyes toward the Lord. When I play, eyes toward the Lord. When I work, eyes toward the Lord. When I rest, eyes toward the Lord. It is when my eyes are taken off of the Lord that those things become, tend to become idols in my life. For example, the food piece. I can look to the Lord for food, but when I take my eyes off, I'm either looking at this food as like, this is going to satisfy my belly. My belly is my God. Or, this food is going to taste really good. The food is my God. With eyes to the Lord, what I, what I begin to see as I look at my food in reference to who God is, I start to see God provided. I'm sustained. God created taste buds for me. So I get to enjoy food. 
God created the metabolical system and provided calories that will convert to energy that give me life. You don't have to think that way, but you have to see God in the way that you eat. You have to see God in the way that you play. You have to see God in the way that you love and spend time with your family. I think there are, um, this is a side note here, I think there are um, three skills that would be, you should spend your life learning. The first is God awareness. Spend your life learning the way of God. The second is self-awareness. And the third is others' awareness. God awareness says, what is God doing here? Where is God going? How is he moving? Self-awareness says, how do I fit into what God is doing? Others' awareness says, how can I love other people, shepherd them in this way? How do I fit in with other people? What are their needs? The life of faith is lived in reference to God. The life of faith looks always to God. In verse 20 then, he says, I take refuge in you. And in verse 21, I wait for you. It seems like as a child watches daddy to learn the way of daddy, so the Christian looks to God to learn the way of God. The Christian cannot be content with merely thinking right thoughts about God or feeling strong affection for God without looking to God to live as one of God's people. That feeling, that thinking must produce a life that is God-centered, God-oriented, God-aware and walks in Yahweh's way. So now, as we consider the life of faith, the past, the present, and the future, I want to think of this as a journey. I want to think of this as a hike. Perhaps you want to think about it as you're walking along Robert Frost's Road Less Traveled. You've rightly, by faith, already chosen to take the path that is less traveled, the path of righteousness that's narrow and difficult, that few find. And because it's less traveled, you discover that it's grown over with weeds. The footprints that you expect to find on a trail are few and far between. The brush has grown over the path. Um, The spiderwebs have blocked every step. You're covered in spiders. That would be enough to get you thinking about following the Lord. It is on this path that you pause. With trepidation, with, uh, with uncertainty, you strain your ears, and you can't hear anyone. You look back over your shoulder to see, maybe I can trace my steps back to get out of here. You survey the surroundings to figure out where the next step might be. You're looking for footprints, something. And you strain to look around the bend, through the brush, to see where the future goes. Is this trail even going to be worth it in the end? It appears to me that as David is looking behind him on the journey of faith, God is there. As he surveys his surroundings, God is there. And as he looks to the future, God is there. As forgiver, as friend, and as faithful. God is the forgiver of the past. Verses 8 and 9, a beautiful prayer. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. They've been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord.
Each of these requests look to the past. What has God done in the past over David's shoulder? What has David done in the past? He invokes God to remember. In the past, God, you made covenant with your people, steadfast love and mercy. In the past, I have sinned. I have failed. Would your love and your mercy cover my sin? David looks behind him and realizes there's no turning back on this path, on this way of faith. I can't go back. Sins of my youth are back there. He prays in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David's request with this eyes of faith, everything in respect to God, he's not praying for forgiveness just because I feel bad about myself. My guilt is producing shame that I feel and it's a heavy burden on me, so relieve me of my burdens. David's prayer is for your name's sake, Lord, forgive my guilt. It is great. How would God pardon David's guilt for his name's sake? Because it would seem that a just and righteous God, who that's his way, has to deal with sin a certain way. And it seems like mercy and steadfast love don't really mix with the justice and the righteousness. You may remember Romans three twenty three through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is able, for his namesake, preserving his character, making himself look beautiful, to forgive the sins committed in the past, to forgive, to pardon David's guilt, and to pardon your guilt. Perhaps you look back on your journey and you look back into the past and you see the sins of your youth and you don't see a God there to forgive them. You've never called on Jesus. You've never trusted him to take care of your mess for his name's sake. By addressing God as David does in this psalm, you will find forgiveness. You will find that God remembers his mercy and his steadfast love. When you look to Jesus, you will find him merciful and full of love. So on this complex journey of faith, we're walking down the trail. David looks back and sees his old self and he says, I can't go back. I've matured. God has dealt with that. But God is not merely a God in the past. You would be, David would be messed up to think, okay, God took care of my past. Now I'm here in the present and I've got to figure out which way I want to go. And I'm going to just start working now toward whatever future I want to create for myself, the best life that I can imagine. I'm going to work toward my ideal. You can't leave God in the past. You can't relegate God in the past. Instead, God, David finds that God is on the trail right beside him. He's paused on the trail and God is right there with him. His friend, 
in the present complexity of the life of faith. God is a friend in present. You may be surprised to find that God is still and always with you in your present because of the complexity of life. It might not, fe- it might not feel like he is with you. David surely felt this way. I summarized a moment ago. He's, as he surveys his surroundings, his first concern is that he not be put to shame. His enemies not win the day. He recognizes his own guilt in verse 11. And then verse 16, lonely, afflicted, troubled heart. He looks around and he says, where is God? Where is the path? It doesn't look like I'm really on this right path here. I started the journey with you, remember. And now we got to here and where are you? Where is the where is the path? David answers his own questions. In verse eight he says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse fourteen he says The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. What is it to fear the Lord? It's not 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 being afraid of the Lord, but of revering God highly enough to take Him at His word. To fear God is to revere Him, to think high enough of His strength and His beauty to take Him at His word. It's faith. Faith in Jesus finds God not only to be a forgiver of the past, but to be a friend in the present. One who instructs a sinner in the way. The relationship with God, broken by sin, has been, is being, restored by faith in the God who forgives. This is where, I think at this moment, where we're paused on the path, looking at the surroundings, and saying, where is God and where is the path is. It is a hard, hard place to be. Those are hard, hard questions to ask. If you find yourself asking those questions, I, I, can't, I can't feel the gravity of the pain or the weight of the decisions that you have to make as you navigate And it sounds trite, it sounds like a quip, but this is Bible. God is with you. I don't know what or why he's doing what he's doing, but he's with you. The same faith that finds God to be the forgiver of the past will find God to be a friend in the present. God will be for you a friend who comforts you, who cares for you, who helps, who sacrifices for you, who saves you, who guides you. When you survey the surroundings around your life and it seems you can't see God or His way, what will you do? Like David, you've looked at the past and you can't go back. Back there are the sins of my youth that God has dealt with. It's been done. So, you look to God to be faithful in the future. Faith finds in the complexity of life God to be faithful in the future. The future tense is only used a couple of times in this psalm. 
Verse 3 says, None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous, which literally just vainly faithless. The ones without faith will be put to shame. In verse 12 and 13 it says, God will instruct the man who fears him in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. In verse 15, David says, My eyes are ever to the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. These future statements are spoken with such certainty that they might be considered principles or axioms by which God operates. They're expressions of the anticipation of future grace. I am so sure God has forgiven my past. God is my friend in the present. Even when I can't see him, I'm so sure of his word in the future. He'll do it. He'll do it. The future, though not spoken, is implied, I think, in all of these requests that David makes. His eyes are to the future. He doesn't know what, where the way is. He doesn't know what's next. But he's requesting these things of God. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Remember your mercy. Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember me according to your steadfast love. Pardon my guilt. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes. Guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. Redeem Israel. David's requests consider God's activity and his character and extrapolate them into the future. The request is even made that God would teach him the path because he knows that the Lord will lead sinners in his path. He expects the God who's forgiven his past to guide his future. He expects the God who is good and his friend to be good and friendly toward him in the future. And so he asks. His expectation is not without warrant. His requests are for things God has promised to do as emanations of his character. Perhaps you're on this journey and you're looking to the future and you're uncertain. You have no idea what the future might hold. You have every reason to be anxious about the future. What, if you're going to find work, how there's going to be food on the table, whether, you, whether or not your life is going to have meaning or significance, whether or not you're going to get to the end of your life and find out that it was all a sham, the future is uncertain. Would you join in praying these requests with David? Show me your ways. Teach me, lead me, guide me. I'm choosing by faith to fix my eyes on you. Live every, live every part of my life in reference to you. Help me. Be faithful in the future. Throughout the complexity of life, throughout this journey, faith looks to God as forgiver of past, friend in present, faithful in future. And then the psalm concludes peculiarly. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. It's peculiar because it doesn't fit the acrostic. And it doesn't fit the perspective of the psalm. The whole time this has been David's experience, David's prayer, and now he's saying redeem Israel, all all of God's people, out of all of his troubles. 
I think, uh, let's suppose that this line, verse 22, has been appended to the psalm during the Old Testament era to enable the church, God's people, to sing it well. And I think it's been um, added for two reasons, to express two things. The first is that all of us will feel the uncertainty, the complexity, the struggle, the loneliness, the ambiguity of walking in the way of Yahweh. All of us. That will be a universal thing for people who follow God. David's prayer in Psalm 25 is not merely David's experience of following God. It's our experience as well. And second, this, this verse makes this personal prayer corporate. What it does is it takes a song about um, takes a song about my God and my experience, and it says, "In fact, He is our God, and this is our experience." My request is that you would save me, but our request is that you would save us. Today, on this side of the cross, our experience of life is similar. It's complex. Our past haunts us. We feel often alone in the present. Our our hope for the future is grim. But in the midst of it all, there is one who forgives. There is one who is a friend and there is one who is faithful. His name is Jesus. He promises eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is a friend reconciling you with God. And he promises to be with you until the end of the age. He promises to return and right all wrongs. The future is not bleak. The future is full of great hope. Jesus is the one who will redeem his people out of all of their troubles. The prayer we've been praying the whole time in Psalm 25 is answered in Jesus. And Jesus is the one that enables us to even pray the prayer that we've been praying the whole time. As we read a moment ago in Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I think that means that Jesus understands the complexity of life. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. In just a moment, an elder and pastor will be available to pray for you in the back. If you are... Um, if you're wrestling with this, you're, you're looking at your past and it's haunting you, you're present, and you're like, where is God in the present? I need a friend. And you're looking to the future and it's unclear. Would you just make your way to the back during these next few songs? Um, they would love to pray for you. Pray this prayer for you, in fact, specifically. But now, I'd invite you to stand with me as we pray. To you, O Lord, we lift up our souls. O God, in you... We trust, let us not be put to shame. Make us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truths and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. And for you we wait all the day long. Father, give us hope. Give us faith. Help us trust in your guidance. From the depths of your grace, you've already richly provided and you will provide again. 
And so we thank you. Let's continue praying as we sing.